On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group previews the second season of Foundation. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by wife of the Palaver, Sarah Beauclair, as we preview the second season of Apple TV's Foundation. Sarah, welcome back to the Palaver. As mentioned in the intro, you have had a change of title. While you are still technically a friend of the Palaver, you're also now a wife of the Palaver. I am. I'm very happy to have you here. And um, we wanted, you and I specifically wanted to get together and discuss the second season of Foundation, which is should be coming out within a few short days of this episode being released. Um, now, you and I did an episode for the Palaver on the first season of Foundation, kind of covering some things. And at the time, we were we were reading the books. I was rereading the books, which I had read many, many years ago and had forgotten most of the plot points. And you were reading through the books um, for the first time. And we had not gotten all the way through that read slash reread at the time we recorded our last episode. And so there were, you know, some questions that we had with regards to what might be going on, what was going on, what was consistent, what wasn't consistent. And as we read through those books again, I think a lot of a lot more things came into focus for me and I suspect for you as well. And so we figured um, this would be a perfect time on the eve of the release of the second season on Apple TV to revisit the idea of, you know, the source material in terms of the six books, I believe it's, no, it's seven books, the seven books that Isaac Asimov wrote regarding Foundation and, you know, talk a little bit about what we know about the second season and what we think we know in terms of where the the creators of the TV series may be going with relation to the source material. And I guess we should state up front, as is standard with these sorts of things, that spoiler alerts are on. We are going to be talking about everything that we can get our little hands on. So we will be discussing very significant plot aspects of all seven books. We will discuss anything that showed up in the first season and you know trying to sort of piece together you know what we're we're going to be looking at so those are our ground rules anyone who wants to remain spoiler free um turn off now and listen to something else but um hopefully you'll stay around and listen to you know our thoughts and conjectures because i think it is a very deep and uh, vibrant tapestry that we have to work with and that the showrunners have created for us. 
And, you know, I guess we should maybe state up front that you and I are maybe, I don't even know how to describe this, but we're not purists in the sense of we have embraced the changes that the TV show have introduced relative to the source material. Um, nothing that I've seen so far has caused me undue gastric upset. Haven't had any sleepless nights over any of the the casting or the you know imp- the introduction of the genetic dynasty. None of that has has worried me at all. And in fact, I've been so impressed. And I've said it to you many many times that you know at this point I am fully committed to what. Uh, Stephen Goyer is is providing us, and I'm willing to give him very many benefits of the doubt as we see what unfolds. I agree with all of that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the interesting things that I kind of came across uh, just today, actually, when I was writing up some notes for this, is um, the series timeline in terms of actual years, if you will, is actually the same, if not, or at least very similar, if not exactly the same, in the TV show and the books, at hmm. least as it pertains to the, the the creation of the foundation. And it's it's interesting. There is I went to a couple of different websites. One was strictly on the TV show timeline. It was you know very specific for events that are depicted in season one of the TV show. And it, it basically goes from 12,067 um, when Gale arrives on Trantor to 12,240. And I saw another one that actually establishes a timeline based on what appeared to be, and I'm not familiar with all of these works, but what appeared to be on all of Asimov's mm. various written works. And it creates a, a full timeline literally from like 1970s on into the, you know, all of the events that are described in the Foundation series. So it basically goes from, you know, the the mid-20th century to, you know, into the 12,000s as well. So was that referencing timelines from the robot novels and the Empire novels, I'm guessing? Those as well as many, many others. Okay. Um, I guess Asimov was, you know, quite prolific. I, again, I've I've read um, some of the Galactic Empire novels. I've read all of the robot novels and the Foundation novels. I haven't read... Uh, there's one other uh, book of his that I did read uh, called Nemesis, which sort of fits in the middle of all of this. Mm-hmm. But I haven't, I haven't read other Asimov beyond that. Um, but... It, it just lays out, you know, like I said, the entire timeline. It's really quite impressive. And and like I said, I was I was a little surprised that the TV show was as close to the you know the the written work timeline as it is. But yeah, that is that is pretty interesting. And I think one of the things I've been most impressed about, especially on this last rewatch are some of those smart choices that Goyer and the team made to tell a story that spans so many years and how difficult that is when you are trying to get your audience to become tied to your cast, right? And that's why I think the genetic dynasty is so brilliant 
And even the decision to put both Gale and Salvor on ice, essentially, by, you know, having them be in cryo and jumping forward in time, we're still going to be with those same characters that we were attached to in the first season and season two because they smartly figured out a way to move us forward much deeper into the, you know, the timeline of the foundation so we can see progress that's been made jump to new characters as well. We're a little farther into the fall, but we're not introduced to a brand new cast, kind of like the, I think, the issue with a show like House of the Dragon, right? Right. Where (laughs) you spend the first five episodes with young cast members, and then you're just kind of hit over the head. Episode six, you're with a whole new cast. Everybody's older, and it took a little bit. I think we both got there. The new cast members were great, but... It was a little bit jarring to switch. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point in terms of how we did this. And and one of the things that I was doing, I think we both did, in preparation for this was to go back and listen to the official podcast with, with Stephen Goyer on there. And he himself very clearly states that, you know, among all the other characters, there are two that are not played by people. One being the vault and the other being, you know, time itself. Right. So when we talk, um, you know, I, and, and so the, I think the time thing resolves itself. Um, the role of the vault, obviously, is vastly different. Something, you know, probably even more so than the genetic dynasty that would probably drive what I'll call purist absolutely bonkers um, is, is the role of the vault and how it operates. Because it's a much more sort of passive thing in in the books right it's in the books the vault is nothing more than a jukebox playing you know pre-selected recordings that's all it does and i want to say there's one there's one of the crises i don't know if it's around the time of the mule or whatnot but there's one of the crises where you know the the vault opens in the book and Harry delivers a message, and it has nothing to do with what's going on, right? Whereas in the TV show, the vault is essentially a copy of Harry's consciousness that has, you know, manifested this structure. And so it has a certain interactive quality to it that, you know, the the book didn't have. And I think... I think that's a savvy choice for a number of reasons. One, you know, you want to be able to use... And what's the character, the actor's name who plays Harry? Uh, Jared Harris. Jared Harris. You, you really need to be able to use Jared Harris much more than, than the source material maybe calls for. And also, I, I think 21st century audiences would probably find a more passive vault to be very staid and uninteresting. I agree. I agree. They modernized it in a really cool way and also found a clever way to keep Jared Harris as Harry around. And he's just such a key part of the story. I think it would be a poor use of him as both an actor and, and Harry as a character to you know, kill him off and have him pop up every once in a while with these recordings. But... I mean, the vault's not the only copy of Harry Seldon we have running around the universe, right? 
Right. So we've got, uh, there was another copy that was, I guess, downloaded from the knife on the Raven that's on the other end of the galaxy, presumably. And so one of the things that I'm looking forward to as we think about the second season is how those two versions of Harry are going to differ from each other and when or if they will ever interact and, you know, how is that going to go? Yeah, do you think that Vault Harry is permanently tied to Terminus and the Vault? Can he move? Can the Vault move? Will the other version of Harry, who it seems like from scenes we've seen in the trailer, that that Harry is able to move around. Yes. Leave, you know, the Raven whenever they get to their destination. Yeah, I, I don't know. And and that's, you know, that's one of the things that we're left to sort of puzzle um, as we head into the second season. And you have the official synopsis of the second season, is that I, correct? I do. Why don't you read it for the, little, uh, little dramatic for the audience? Yeah, All right, please. so this is, this is my first time viewing the official plot synopsis of season two. More than a century after the season one finale, tension mounts throughout the galaxy in Foundation Season 2. As the Cleons unravel, a vengeful queen plots to destroy Empire from within. Harry, Gale, and Salvor discover a colony of mentalics with psionic abilities that threaten to alter psychohistory itself. The Foundation has entered its religious phase, promulgating the Church of Selden throughout the Outer Reach and inciting the Second Crisis, War with Empire. The monumental adaptation of Foundation chronicles the stories of four crucial individuals transcending space and time as they overcome deadly crises, shifting loyalties, and complicated relationships that will ultimately determine the fate of humanity. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Well done. So that's interesting, right? Because this indicates that AI Harry somehow connects up with Gale and Salvor, who last were seen on Synax. Right. You know, one of the things that you and I have been trying to sort of puzzle out, and it's interesting when we talk about this, and I, I, I haven't listened to our previous episode on this, so I don't remember how much of this we've already covered. Um, but, it, you know, the way that the Foundation stories were written, basically, Asimov started in the middle with the three originals that were basically a set of short stories that were published in magazines and then collected up and published. And those were in the early 1950s. So Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation all came out in the 50s. Then the pre or the sequel books, um, yeah. Foundation's Edge and Foundation and Earth, were published in what, the early 80s, mid-80s? Yeah, 1982 and then 1986. Okay. And then, um, so that sort of, and again, just for those of you who haven't checked out the spoiler alert section, huge spoiler, Foundation and Earth is where we get the ultimate connection between the Galactic Empire, the Foundation, and the robot novels in the form of R. Daniel Oloval, who's been orchestrating all of this. And then, I guess, once, once Asimov made that connection, 
it must have planted more seeds. So he went back in, was it the early 90s? So 88 was prelude to foundation and then forward the foundation in 1993. Okay. So late 80s, early 90s, the last things I think that, that Asimov wrote were the prequels, which basically, you know, give us a little bit more background into Harry Seldon, the person, and really go into the the origins of the second foundation. And again, when we've watched season one of the TV show, we had not gone back through and read all of those because we read them in the order in which they were published, not the order in which they showed up in the story. Correct, yeah. So the question always was, you know, how much of the material was Goyer pulling off of? And I think the answer after reading everything, and I remember going through those books um, and, and just every sort of revelation making another piece of the TV show make sense, I think the answer is Goyer's got the whole picture. And so, and I point that out because when you're reading the stories, at least in the chronological order in which they are written, things unfold in a certain way. You're, you're shown certain bits of information um, that if you had known in the beginning would change the way that you viewed things that happened earlier in the story. And so Goyer is, he's got all of this and he's building these elements into the story while still making it interesting to come across things that happen later in time in the story. And, and this is why I'm just so on board with what he's doing and I'm, I'm willing to give him complete benefit of the doubt with regards to some of the changes that he's made. But one of the things we've been trying to figure out is the connection to the second foundation, right? Because in the original stories, the second foundation is established simultaneously with the first foundation in secret to sort of guardrail. Um, and, and, you know, you can tell me if you have a different view on this because my memory is somewhat faulty, but I think it's designed to sort of guardrail against some of humanity's worst instincts is is how I like to describe it. But the way that the second foundation is sort of being presented in the TV series, it's not immediately obvious that it it sort of serves the same function in that in the books, the second foundation is mentalities of people who have telepathic abilities and can influence um, as well as on certain levels read people's minds. They can basically adjust people when they need to to make sure certain things happen or certain things don't happen. Clearly in the TV show, Gale and Salvor have this ability. And, and it was funny because the first two times I watched the show and I hadn't gotten I hadn't put all that together, but all of the clues of Gale being psychic are really quite obvious. They are, yeah. <laughs> and I was very embarrassed that it didn't hit me in the head the first time. And obviously Salvor has, you know, similar things with her, you know, being able to call the coin flips and everything else. Right. Well, and at the, you know, end of season one, one of the biggest reveals is that Salvor is, in fact, Gale and Raish's daughter. Exactly. 
So it makes sense that she has these same abilities. So if we think back to one of the one of the prequel books, I, I think it was Forward the Foundation. The origin of the second foundation is Raish's daughter Wanda. Right. So you know that tracks perfectly um, in terms of the story. But when Gale winds up on the Raven with AI Harry instead of Raish, and she explains her abilities, AI Harry seems completely flummoxed by this this concept, which if if AI Harry and Raish were going to establish the second foundation. You know, what, why is he so surprised by that ability? Well, you even just read it in the, um, in the official synopsis for season two, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the plot that they wanted to call out in that description is that Harry and Gale and Salvor stumble across this colony of Mentalics. And so clearly, I mean, maybe they want us to not know that detail and we'll reveal it in season two. Perhaps that was Harry's plan to go find this group of people and they are who he wants to populate the second foundation with. Yeah. And to your point, it was just a surprise that Gale also had those powers that he was looking for and, and was wanting to staff the second foundation with, but they've only really scratched the surface of second foundation so far. And I'm, I'm super excited. We'll get to see more of it than we ever got in the books. Yeah. I think that's interesting, right? Because in the books, the second foundation spends a lot of the time as just the boogeyman that everyone's chasing. And they always manage to sort of stay one step ahead and fake their own death several times over. Yeah, so in Second Foundation, there are basically two halves, which is the search by the mule and the search by the foundation, which are essentially the same story told over and over again. Yeah, searching for the Second Foundation is what both of those groups are doing. And then that whole story is repeated again in Foundation's Edge when mm-hmm. Golan Treviz goes out mm-hmm. and is also searching for the second foundation. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 but you never actually spend all that much time in the second foundation. So I'll be curious to see how they develop this. And, you know, again, in the books, the second foundation was established you know, just prior to, or the idea for the Second Foundation came up just prior to the establishment of, of both of them. So Harry recognized the need for, you know, this extra component. Um, what's interesting is that in the TV show, it's Gale who has recognized that the prime radiant and the equations contained therein don't cover everything that they need to cover. And there's a gap. And so I'm, I'm wondering if clearly the second foundation is meant to close that gap. But was Harry's plan always to keep working on whatever the how to close that gap? Did he know how to do it? Didn't have the right people? You know, I, I'm curious to see how this works. Yeah, you just made me think of it because I know when I was looking back through the notes I had taken while reading the prequels, one of the really cool points that jumped out at me is that it's actually Daniel Oliva in, you know, one of his many different kind of masks or in, in his secret identities that he shows up in throughout the books. He gives Harry the idea for having a backup plan. Right. He's like, you know, 
it's smart to have a you know an alternative in case your first plan, aka the foundation on Terminus, doesn't work out. So he puts that seed into Harry's mind. And what I'm really curious about is how much of the younger Harry stuff we're going to see. Um, are we going to see some of those interactions between Daniel and Harry, Cleon even, and Harry? Because a lot of the last book that Asimov published, uh, Prelude to Foundation, is Cleon the First and Harry and, and Demerzel under that name. Right. And I'd love to see how they how they do that in the show moving forward. How yeah, they change it. Exactly. And it's it's so interesting reading through those those prequels because I want to say um, Prelude to Foundation is when Harry is somehow convinced that the first minister in the form of Ido Demerzel, who is in fact our Daniel Olaval, is trying to get him. And I, I don't remember exactly, but it, it was actually engineered by Daniel to get Harry out and about and having these experiencing different portions of Trantor. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I I flip-flopped mine. So the the interactions between Cleon and Demerzel happen in forward, but in Prelude, right. it's Daniel under the character Hummin, who oh, right. Harry, Harry's on Trantor, he's just visiting from Helicon for a math conference, and Hummin has these men attack Harry in the street, comes up to him and says, you really need to stay on Trantor, I think you need to work on psychohistory, oh by the way, the Empire is going to fall, we can keep you safe if you stay here, you can never go home. Right. And, and, and so, you know... Ultimately, it's, you know, as, as you pointed out, R. Daniel Oliveau shows up in several different characters throughout this, including the First Minister, um, which is totally consistent with what we're seeing now. And, you know, so he's been driving all of this. And, and we were talking about, you know, he, in one of these forums, advises Harry to have a backup plan. Well, one of the things that we find out, of course, is that the Foundation is Olival's backup plan. Exactly. So he has, you know, something else in mind that, again, brilliantly is, you know, the reason for that is sort of already alluded to in in the first season of Foundation with the nebulous Exo written in blood aboard the Invictus. Yeah. So there's so cool. It, it's all of these things, right? The fact that Demerzel is there. Demerzel's a robot, so we can pretty much assume that Demerzel is Olaval because that's the way it's supposed to be. I think it's brilliant the way they, you know, change the sex of that character. Um, makes a certain amount of, of sense. There's a lot of of updating like that that I think is good. Not just because in the original books there's virtually no women running around anywhere. Yeah. In terms of characters. Yeah, I'm curious if we'll see the character of Demerzel in, you know, a male actor's body throughout the series as Goyer has it planned. Will will she always show up? Will Daniel Demerzel, whatever names yeah. they end up using, will it always be a female bodied form? And maybe, you know, I'm not suggesting this is the case, but one of the things that could happen, right? At the end of season one, 
presumably from having had to murder Dawn, um, that robot in question tears off its entire head. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, maybe it's time for a rebuild. I don't know. Could be. But uh, it's it's very interesting to me the way they have everything set up. And, and so I'm curious to see how it goes. One of the scenes that we have were, were released very early on in the teaser for season two is the character of Harry saying to someone, you and I need to have a reckoning. And that scene immediately cuts to a picture of one of the Cleons, but I'm not convinced that it's Cleon he's talking to. Um, I wonder if it's not Olival in the form of Demerzel that mm. he's in fact having that conversation with. Because presumably, you know, based on what I think I see on those, you know, the, the few preview scenes I've seen, yeah. I think we're going to see some of that backstory of establishing the foundation on Trantor before, you know, the events of season one. Yeah. Do you think that that confrontation is a past one or a future one? I've always thought it was a past one. Yeah. But again, you know, with AI Harry running around, I, I, it could be both, either one. But I, I just think it, it feels to me like a, a past interaction. It does to me too. And I think that will be, like I mentioned, one of the things I hope they do is spend some of the time showing Harry's backstory, showing some of those early planning kind of sessions, especially how he met Cleon, how he met Demerzel, and if they pull from any of that other prequel source material, which is, is pretty yeah. ripe. It, it is. Now, if we talk about the prequel, actually, no, I'm sorry, the sequels yeah. is, is where I was going with this. Because um, we've talked about some of the, the narrative and, and casting choices they've done. So there are a lot of names that are flying around that are the same as in the books. Um, but sometimes the role's a little bit different. Sometimes it's a lot a bit different. Mm -hmm. So if we think, you know, and, and I think broad strokes, very, very broad strokes. It seems to me, if you look at the, the sections in the first book, Foundation, there's the psychohistorians, the encyclopedists, the mayors, the traders, and the merchant princes. My impression is that season one essentially covers the psychohistorians through the traders. Hmm. I think, you know, when we look at that synopsis for season two and it talks about the the uh, the religion of, of Selden, um, I think that sort of is where the merchant princes started to come in, if I recall correctly. Okay. Um, it's been a while since I've read that, but I, I think it's it's something like that. So if we look then... Um, you know, at some of the names we have, Gail Dornick obviously is mentioned extremely briefly in the first foundation. Um, a mathematician is brought to Trantor, um, ultimately becomes Harry's biographer, I believe. Mm. Um, and I want to say 
Gail Dornick is fleshed out a little bit more in the prequels, if I recall. No, no? very little. She's or he, he rather in the yeah. in the book um, is mentioned at the very end of the last novel. Harry's on his deathbed, and okay. he is saying that he just finished recording all of the clips that are going to be in the time vault on Trantor, and his assistant Gail Dornick will travel there and insert them into the vault for him on his behalf. Okay. Yeah. So, so the Gail Dornick in the show obviously seems to have a much larger role um, that we'll, we'll figure out. Dr. Lewis Pyrene in the book is head of the encyclopedists um, who is at loggerheads with the first mayor, Salver Hardin. So very similar in a lot of regards. Um, Louis Pyrene is, is interesting, and we talked about this on our most recent rewatch, in that Lewis, throughout season one, when you see him, comes off as a bit of a toad, <laughs> uh, until ultimately his, his last act is very redeeming. And so knowing that, I was like, all right, I'm just going to give Lewis a pass on all this stuff because I know he's going to come through. A character on the board of trustees is called George Farah, hmm. which I think is interesting when you get Farah, the Grand Huntress of Anacreon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, I think that's just, you know, hey, that's a cool name. We'll use that. One of the things that sort of struck me, um, and I want to say it's in the prequels, there's actually a character called Hugo Amaril, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who is a psychohistorian. I believe he's listed as perhaps the second best psycho historian behind Harry himself. Yeah, he's actually very important in the prequels in that he helps Harry develop the Prime Radiant. There's mm-hmm. actually two Prime Radiants. He has one. Right. And his actually gets passed down to Wanda on um, you know, upon his death. Right. So he's a pretty important character. But it's not I don't think that's a direct Translation to Hugo Crass, right? Who is our traitor, right? You know, and I think it, the names are similar, but I don't think it. I think it's a coincidence in this particular point. But I bring up Hugo specifically because Hugo is sort of like our nod to the traitors section. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, they were traitors, cool, but that's not really where we're going to spend our time. <laughs> in the introduction. To the first season, Gail Dornick, our narrator, specifically calls out Hober Mallow and the Mule. Mm-hmm. Very specifically. The two biggest names um, that were mentioned that didn't show up in season one. Mm-hmm. So Hober Mallow obviously was one of the merchant princes, became a mayor. Um, very, very critical. And, uh, you know, the Mule, I think anyone who knows anything about Fended Foundation doesn't need to be told about the mule and then there's salver harden so how salver harden again as previously mentioned in the books was the mayor of terminus city which was a figurehead position and through various situations in the first selden crisis um salver harden is able to create a genuine power in the mayor mayoralty of terminus in the, in the show, Salver Harden has been given a completely different role. Mm-hmm. She's introduced to us as Warden of Terminus, 
with these telepathic abilities that no one seems to understand what the hell they are. Um, ultimately, she's introduced as the daughter of Raish, a.k.a. the grandson of Harry, who, again, we know is part of the start of the of the uh, second foundation. But the other interesting thing is she has basically, so she, she's been given a couple different roles, the character of Salvor Harden in the show. We have this, this Wanda Selden role in terms of her psychic abilities, but there's, I, I anticipate given conversation she had with her father early on, she may also very well have the Golan Treviz role mm -hmm. of searching for Earth. Yeah. The first watch through, again, before I had read through the sequel books, and I, you know, tell me if you feel the same way, but the first watch through when she and her father are having that conversation about, you know, being a single origin planet Earth, without knowing those stories, that didn't, you know, it's like, oh yeah, isn't that cute? But after I had read those stories and followed Golden Treviz's whole, you know, search for Earth, you know, um, ending in this discovery of Ardaniel Oloval in Earth's moon, that small conversation took on huge, huge implications, especially when Salvor gets in a ship and mm -hmm. not only leaves Terminus, but as you pointed out, is sort of you know, cryo fast forwarded 150 years mm -hmm. into where, you know, the parts of the story where these sorts of things occur. So I, that to me is, you know, a, a, a brilliant bit of adaptation, I think, beyond the fact, and I don't remember if we talked about this in the show or not. I know we talked about it in real life as we were reading it. In 21st century life, the character of Golan Treviz is problematic at best and disgusting at worst. Yeah, yeah. he's a tough thing. <laughs> he, he is just absolutely a gross individual. <laughs> and, and so, you know, a straight adaptation of Golan Treviz wouldn't help. And I don't... I'm I'm hoping that the name Golan Treviz just even goes away. Yeah, it, it, the character is so bad in that regard. Yeah, it's another really smart way to keep us with familiar faces and characters we grow attached to as well, rather than introducing a bunch of people every season who are responsible for carrying forward some of those book plot points, whichever ones they choose to. And I'm. To your point, I'm super curious if they do anything with the search for Earth or if that was just kind of an Easter egg for book readers in season one. But I'd love if that kind of fell to Salvor instead of introducing yeah. a goal in Treviz. And I am confident that if they do, it will be he will be handled in a much different way. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm, I have no doubt. If if Golan Treviz shows up, he will be a different sort of beast altogether. But again, based on this synopsis, it seems like, you know, Gail, Salvor, and Harry are having a little uh, picnic, uh, you know, adventure across the uh, the galaxy. So it does. You know that that sort of reeks to me a little bit like that that plot point. While we're on the the topic of casting, 
can I call out a few of the the names that they've revealed for season Ooh, two? Oh, yes. So, interestingly, they, they announced a bunch of new characters, and there's only four who are book characters, and the rest are, are new names that we aren't familiar with from okay. the book. So, some of these do tie directly to the notes you were going through in the parts of the book. So, are, um, you, are you going to tell us the actor and the character name? So, if if it's notable, if it is notable, yes, I will probably butcher these some of these uh, actor names. So okay. I, I apologize in advance if I do. Um, but one of the characters from the books who's of note is Bel Rios, who was a okay. general yep. of the Galactic Empire. So I think he's important in Foundation, Foundation and Empire. Empire. Yep. So he's been cast by one Ben Daniels. That's an easy one to pronounce. Um, we know that a grown-up Polly Verisoff okay, yeah. is in season two. And so if um, anyone watched the first season, he was played by the little... There was one of the little boys who was running around Trantor who was trying to get close to the uh, the vault right. in the very beginning. Uh, one of those first... Oh, sorry, not on Trantor, on Terminus. On Terminus. And yeah. trying to get beer out of Hugo. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So a grown-up version of him, who is a book character, um, Hober Mallow has been cast oh. in season two. Um, someone named Dimitri Leonidas. Okay. And then this one's the most interesting to me, and I have a question for you, because they have cast the warlord of Calgan, who, if you remember in the books, is a very key character uh-huh. for the mule. Yep. And so in, um, in the book, the mule kind of takes over... The warlord, you know, uses his metallic abilities to right. sort of to program him. program him and use him. And Calgan is a, a planet that is um, kind of on the outer rim with right. Anacreon and, and Terminus. So I'm really interested, cool. and I'm curious if you think we'll see the mule. So it it does sound to me like this is lining up with sort of the back end of the first book and the first, at least the first part of Foundation and Empire. No, in fact, I think it is Foundation and Empire because the mule's introduced and Second Foundation is the mule looking for the Second Foundation. Correct. Correct, yeah. Now, it could be the mule's hidden in those other names that we don't know about. Could be. It could be. Because we know when we meet the mule, we never suspect he's actually the mule. We don't. (laughs) No, he shows up as a as a jester. As a jester, right? Yeah, yeah, and he has he has sort of a disfigured face. He's he's seen as a um, like a genetic anomaly or something, right, right? In the book, so he's you know covers his face and wears masks and is eventually revealed to be this you know great force against the foundation. But I'm really curious if we're going to meet that character in season two. Or if, and if we do, will we even know it? Exactly. Uh, one other one that jumped out to me. So this is a character who's not in the books, but they have cast um, an actress named Nimrod Kaur um, as uh, Yana Selden, who um, I read in one article is going to be playing Harry's daughter. And so Harry does not have a daughter he in the not. books. Um, you know, he only has Raish's adopted son, who then. Right gets married and they have Wanda who we've mentioned earlier in the podcast but I'm really curious if you know maybe it's a very small role and we see some of Harry on Helicon maybe before he comes to Trantor but 
interesting. I'm interested, yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know, I haven't looked at, up the actress, so I don't know how old this character is. Um, if she's a you know a, a child actor or, or an older daughter. Cool. Yeah. Kind of neat. Anything else that you think that we're going to see or that you want to see mm. in uh, season two? So I'm curious if you think that we'll find out why Cleon chose Demerzel in season two. How did they get linked up? How did Cleon the first meet Demerzel? Has Demerzel been programmed in any kind of way to tie her to the Cleons when she doesn't fully want to be there? Yeah, so the Demerzel being attached to the Cleons is fascinating. And I think it's the it's the the strongest representation of the zeroth law in that there must be something to be gained in terms of protecting humanity by serving them. But I think you raise an excellent question because the Cleons, certainly the clones, seem to operate under this assumption that she has been programmed to support them. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that for a second. Really? <laughs> I, I do not. I think Olivaz as a as a being is operating under his own set of rules mm. and is doing what he slash it feels is the best answer for the human race. Mm-hmm. And if that means serving the genetic dynasty in order to, you know, you know, keep things sort of moving in a direction, that's fine. Um, but I think when push comes to shove, there's going to come a point where that's going to no longer be in the best interest for that being, and they'll stop. Hmm. I mean, what's really interesting to me is the fact that that robot murdered the adulterated Dawn. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as we know from the laws of robotics, that's not an easy thing for a robot to do. And so was the presence of that adulterated clone going to be problematic for the empire was it going to lead to you know more deaths or a more violent or quick end to the empire like do we have to keep the empire around long enough to allow the the foundation to sort of become ascendant right um and so she had it had to protect that by literally killing this clone and of course you know i'll be really interested i hope they go deeper into the fact that the dna has been fucked up for all of them (laughs) i know because as much as i love the the dynamics of the genetic dynasty if you start having them differentiate from each other that could be hilarious in a number of ways yeah and and i hope we spend time with that too i think it'll be really interesting and and do they try and cover that up is it is it out there too much now and and to that point when i was reading back through some of my prequel notes again do you remember there was this group in for the foundation called the joranamites and they were basically this anti-empire yeah. group 
and reading about them and kind of what they did in the books, it made me wonder if that is who in the show we see Azura working for. Right. And and do you think that we'll see more about the group that Azura was with? Is that something that was just used as a plot point for, for this season one to kind of, you know, cause some strife for the genetic dynasty? Do we never see them again? I, I hope that's not the case. I hope we do get to, to learn a little bit more about that. And it's interesting because, and you pointed out, um, based on your, your notes, when after Ido Demrazel decides that, you know, that particular individual has appeared to be the same for too long and must make an exit lest people start asking questions, and somehow Harry Selden becomes first minister to Cleon, mm-hmm. which is an interesting sort of... Uh, variation. There is an attempt on the emperor's life that is um, spearheaded by a gardener. Yes. And, you know, that's an interesting little tidbit that, again, I hadn't remembered until I did the reread. <laughs> and, and so it makes the Azura, you know, role much more compelling um, than it even was before. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, like I said, all of this is, it's just telling us that Goyer has and understands all of this source material and he's changed up things that will work for his show in a 21st century audience and he's going to give it to us in a way that's going to keep us engaged throughout the show. And I, I've enjoyed that aspect of trying to figure out, you know, what has he given us? And, you know, I don't, I have no problem being wrong because that just, you know, it, it adds to the enjoyment to me. And, and I've really, we've spent as much time thinking about the show as we have watching it. And we watched it through three times already. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. I, I could not be more excited for season two and beyond and I'm really hopeful that Goyer gets to make all eight seasons that he has planned. And I guess I'm, you know, thinking about that in the timeline and being hopeful that we'll get all eight seasons. Do you think that in what Goyer has planned, he gets through the thousand years of the foundation of the, the fall? Because as we know, you discussed it at the beginning of the podcast, you know, Asimov, released you know foundation and earth that was the farthest into the fall it was only about halfway through right. about 500 years in he didn't get to the end of what he had planned and and asimov actually foundation or his his last novel was released posthumously right and so i wonder you know did he intend if he had lived longer would he have gone past foundation and earth in his timeline and and Will Goyer go past the source material or not in his eight seasons? And and that's interesting because I remember in, I think there was the first episode of the official podcast, Goyer himself makes that point and explicitly calls out the thousand-year history mm-hmm. or the thousand-year period. Yeah. Which begs the question, like, what is what is Goyer's main goal is it to adapt the source material and the time period that it covers for television or is it to tell the whole story 
I think there's a very good reason that when Asimov returned to the Foundation stories, he went back in time to the prequels and not forward in time to cover those last 500 years. Um, welcome new member of the Palaver Didi, whose actual name is Duchess Demerzel, named after this very show. So <laughs> thanks for showing up, Didi. Thanks, Dee. <laughs> um, you know, so we'll have to see what what he does with that. I and it really depends on how the reveal shows up, right? Like the reveal of of Oliva is the showstopper if and only if you're familiar with the robot novels. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, okay, great. It's a robot. Wonderful. We already know Demerzel's a robot. Yeah, it's such a good point because they laid that out so quickly in the show. And that was one thing in my first watch that blew me away. And at first I was like, oh, I can't believe that they are already revealing that there's robots in this universe. It's a big deal in the books. Yeah. Nobody knows. Many of our characters don't even know what that word means. It's right. been so long since, I mean, they don't know what Earth is. They don't know anything about the exodus from Earth to the initial worlds with robots. It's its all been lost to history. It's been scrubbed from history on purpose by the robots themselves. And so to reveal right away that we have a robot yeah. and everyone knows she's a robot. And I just, it's its going to be really interesting to see what they do with that. Yep. A hundred percent. It'll be fascinating. Yeah. So very much, uh, very much looking forward to it. Yeah. Anything else? Any closing thoughts? I think for me, just circling back to some of the casting and, and you noted some of the differences and, you know, swapping genders, this last rewatch that we just finished really, really stuck with me. I'm so thankful for having many of these characters be women and be as well-written as they are. I think it's very unique even still to have female characters who are written as well as these are. And Salvor, <laughs> and we've we've watched some examples recently <laughs> where that's not always the case. We have. We <laughs> Looking have. at you, Mission Impossible Two, <laughs> terrible, absolutely <laughs> terrible. But it, it does. It makes me appreciate this so much more. I'm happy that they gender swap these characters. I'm happy that they give them traits that are traditionally saved for men, which is something that David and the writer, um, one of the female writers on the show, mentioned in the official podcast, and. You know, even the fact that, you know, it's not just Salvor and Gale, they cast, you mentioned Farah earlier. Yeah. This very key antagonist in season one is a grand huntress, not a grand hunter. And yep. that's really cool. And it's just important for me. And I appreciate it very much. Yeah. And, and that sort of leads into something that I just want to touch on very, very quickly. And I, I think we touched on it before as well. And, and actually, Goyer talked about it in the official podcast. I appreciate very much the the rich diversity in terms of the different um, cultures that we get to see throughout the galaxy, which makes a perfect sense. And, and I want to say that in our first episode on this, we talked a little bit about the the space barbarians of Anacreon, but uh, I mean, in the written material, it. It's explicitly stated 
that Anacreon sort of reverts to explicit barbarism. So I initially I was going to say, you know, it was maybe a little stereotypical having them run around looking the way they do and acting the way they do and, and having a bow. But, you know, I guess, you know, if, if that's a, an expressed, um, reaction to events that unfolded on them, you know, I guess it makes sense, but it is kind of, if you don't know all of that, it does seem a little odd. Yeah. Just to have little space barbarians running around. It does. I, I think the, to your point, just like it seems everything in the show has been very well thought out and those types of decisions were made on purpose. They weren't overlooked or, or made without a lot of thought. Um, and, and I think Goyer had mentioned that the, the writers for the series spent a lot of time sort of thinking about the backstories of these different cultures. And I mean, you have, I think in order to, to do that well, you have to have an understanding of where these people come from and yeah. why they look and act the way they do. So it, it's, I just, you know, you mentioned um, Farah and that just sort of popped in my head. So yeah, from the official podcast, one of the, the things on this, uh, this is my second time listening back through it. I, I really enjoyed it, and, and I hope they do it for season two. And it wasn't just a, you know, season one marketing thing. Um, I hope we get more. I think it's one of the best official podcasts I've ever listened to. But the host of that podcast, who who talked to Goyer and, and different writers, um, mentioned that he's a, a an Asian American, and he said something to the effect of it, you know, it made him feel so good that someone has imagined him in the future and put him in, you know, he can see himself that he made it there, right? His people made it there. He said that explicitly. I made it there. And that just really hit me. And, you know, that's such a nice thing. It it really is. It, and the, you know, and, and apparently that's reflected in the writer's room. You know, Goyer said explicitly, I don't want a room full of me's. I want a room full of different people so that we can get these different perspectives. There was one, there was one writer who, and he may have been like one of the lead writers, but he was on like episode four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, he was like, you know, look, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with genre stuff. It's not really my thing, but that's exactly why, you know, Goyer wanted people like that, which is cool. Yeah, I think that same guy said that he had, you know, not read many of these types of books from the golden age of sci-fi because he opened them up and was like, well, these are, you know, written for white men (laughs) by white men. And (laughs) to your your point and back to mine about having these amazing female characters, it's even more ironic knowing that not a single woman showed up in these books until maybe the third. I can't remember, but it's baffling and when they did show up they it, weren't great it wasn't it wasn't spectacular <laughs> it, was, uh, it was mission impossible 2 level <laughs> of a female character well yeah so very much excited we hope you're excited for this if you we've gotten a couple of, of uh, emails about the previous episode we did so those of you who are listening to this one hope you are as excited as we are and we definitely very much look forward to your thoughts you know what are you looking forward to 
with regards to season two. Uh, hopefully we've tidied up a couple of things that we left hanging that we didn't understand on the first time. And um, yeah, let us know your thoughts and where you're going and, and how you like it. And my guess is we'll probably do a season two recap when the season's done. So very much look forward to that. As do I. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. So, um, you're welcome to uh, contact us with all your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at Prague Paula on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time. Thanks for listening.